one, one, two, three. Hello and welcome to the People Powered Green Left Podcast, where we give a voice to the 99% and not the big corporations. If you think this project is important, please consider becoming a supporter today. Now, on to our latest episode. I'd like to welcome everyone to um, our public forum, Comp 26, um, a left response, which has been organised by Socialist Alliance and Green Left. And just to give a brief introduction to myself, um, my name is Jacob Andwafer, and I'm a member of Socialist Alliance, and I'll be um, sharing this meeting tonight. Now, I guess before um, we begin, I would like to acknowledge that, well, from the lands that I'm on right now, um, but there's this um, um, this forum is being organised from Melbourne, um, also known as NAM, which is the traditional lands of the Wandry Wurrung people. I would like to pay my respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging, and acknowledge that this land was stolen and never ceded, and that the struggle for justice for First Nations people in Australia is ongoing. And also, probably acknowledge that you know. Um, Aboriginal people will bear the brunt of the crisis um, that we kind of face with the climate. I like this forum what has been organised in response to um, the recent kind of COMP26, um, the United Nations Climate Change Conference, which, I mean, in a sense, aimed to um, get um, countries' to pledges to rapidly reduce um, carbon and methane emissions within the kind of next 10 years. Now, there has been quite a lot of commentary on this conference and what it actually represents for the climate movement um, and then what we face. Um, probably people probably aware that um, Greta Thunberg kind of described it as kind of like the festival of kind of blah, blah. And I guess at the same time, part of why we're sort of hosting um, this discussion is by which this sort of meeting is kind of resigning is within the Comp26 conference, Australia has actually played... Um, a really appalling role that's even below the standards of what most um, Western capitalist countries are willing to do in terms of climate action. In fact, Scott Morrison's sort of recent announcements is that he's only really prepared to commit to net zero emissions by 2050, um, and in, which basically means no change kind of sinks to the status quo. And of course, we've written quite a lot of articles in um, Green Left, and I'd like to bring your attention to some of the articles that we've kind of written on this on, you know, undermine why, why this is kind of problematic. So that's why we've, um, Green Left have kind of organised, and Socialist Alliance has kind of organised this kind of discussion, kind of re response, you know, trying to kind of bring people kind of together to, you know, have a bit of a kind of left-wing kind of response to the COP26 conference. So for our forum tonight, we have around um, two speakers. Um, so um, we have John Molyneux, um, who's coming all the way, to, um, who's from Ireland um, to speak to us today. Um, he is a convener of Global Eco Socialist Network and a veteran socialist activist based in Ireland. And he was also involved in um, the, he's also been part of the Comp26 Coalition, which is one of the groups that organised some of the protests that have taken place outside Comp26. And they also organised their own sort of people sort of summit counter kind of conference um, alongside as well, um, bringing together sort of grassroots activists and so on. And then we have Sarah Halfway, um, who is the national co-convener of Socialist Alliance, who is going to be speaking. So the speakers are going to be each speaking for about 15 to 20 minutes or so. Um, and then we'll open up the meeting um, to questions and discussions. So the first um, speaker I was going to sort of um, 
asked to kind of um, speak is um, John Molino, um, who I've just already given a kind of a, a bit of a, already a brief introduction to. Um, so I'll pass it on to John. So, yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Jacob. And it's really great uh, to be here um, and able to speak to you. Uh, good evening to you all. It's good, very, but in a sense, good, very much good morning from me, being early morning in, uh, in Ireland. Um, uh, following your custom of saying speak, that you're speaking from unceded land, I think I should say I'm speaking from uh, what was Britain's oldest uh, and longest colony, uh, and now no longer a, a British colony, but now a, a tax haven <laughs> for the multinational corporations. Um, progress of a kind, maybe. Um, okay, uh, and... Uh, as I say, it's very, very good to see you all. It's a, uh, I suppose, the only one of the very few uh, compensations of living in the pandemic is that we actually, through Zoom, talk to each other internationally much more. So that, 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 that's great. Um, I want to I'll start, obviously, with the abject failure of COP26, even in its own terms. Um, I expected to be honest with you, that uh, COP would at least engage in some serious greenwashing. And that in the aftermath of COP, the, one of the key tasks of the left would be to show how, um, you know, what they claimed uh, and what they were, were actually doing were quite different. That, that we would have to engage in a forensic dissection of what had come out of COP and look at the small print and so on. Actually, I don't think in the present circumstances that's even really necessary. Um, uh, uh, Jacob quoted uh, uh, Greta Thunberg denouncing the conference it, while it was going on as blah, 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 which was, I think, very effective and very useful. We certainly made use of that on our demonstrations and so on in Ireland. Uh, but after the conference, she said they'd managed to even water down the blah, blah, blah. And that was quite an achievement. Um, uh, George Monbiot, the well-known environmental, I don't know if he's well-known in Australia, but he's well-known well in Northwestern Europe. George Monbiot described as a suicide pact. And for us in Ireland, perhaps most telling was the statement by Mary Robinson. Mary Robinson is the former president of Ireland. She was the first woman president of Ireland. She then went on to be the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, the UN Special Envoy on Climate Change and so on. She's a big noise establishment figure. And she said, she described COP26 as a shameful dereliction of duty um, on the part of our leaders, etc. I wouldn't quite put it like that, but uh, uh, given that the, the, these people are making this, it, it, it's you can gather that it was a total disaster. Um, the only kind of claim that it makes is that it's the first to explicitly plan to reduce coal. Now that tells you something. They've had 26 COP conferences, and this is the first time they have even talked about reducing coal. And they've only talked about that. And remember, that was watered down um, particularly uh, through China and India, uh, and some, no doubt, Australia played um, uh, its own part in that, and so there's nothing definite there. They're just vaguely going to phase it down. Uh, 
Uh, they are pressing for more urgent measures, but that means nothing. They've been pressing for more urgent measures since 1992. There's no concrete commitments. The pledges that they are making um, are not enough to limit uh, the warming of the planet to 1.5 um, uh, degrees Celsius. There was, um, even if the pledges were implemented, they're still on course for more than two degrees. And of course, there are, to say there is no guarantee the pledges will be uh, implemented is too weak. I mean, it's almost certain that they won't be because none of their other pledges have been uh, 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 implemented. And perhaps most telling of all, their declaration made no mention of the fossil uh, fuel industry. But given that the single group organization or body that had the most number of delegates, more than any individual country, at the COP conference was the fossil fuel industry with over 500 delegates. This is hardly surprising. Okay, that, that's, so I think we can say, you know, somebody put in the chat, cop out 26, yes, a complete, a, 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 a complete cop out, a complete disaster. The key question, therefore, I think for the left, we have to, to address is why? Why was um, COP such a failure? And here, there are, I think, several arguments are quite important. It's tempting to see it, and the, a lot of the media puts it in this way, and some of the, sometimes they put Greta Thunberg's statements in this way, and so on, and see it as a generational issue. It's the old versus the young. I don't buy that one, partly because I'm 73. <laughs> but... Uh, uh, I, I, don't, I don't think that's the fundamental thing. I, I think there may be a difference in generational response to some extent, but that's not the root of the problem. It's certainly not ignorance. Our rulers have known for decades. The first Earth Summit was in 1992, by the way. So it's, it, it, it's not ignorance. Is it just not caring? Well, in a sense, you could say it's not caring, but why don't they care? And what actually are they doing? Sometimes people say to me, uh, yeah, but don't they realize their children, their futures, you know, are, are going to be destroyed? I think probably in their heads, what they're doing is saying we're going to gamble on technological advance, you know, a sort of Elon Musk response. But that tells you something. That means they're willing to gamble the entire future of humanity on technology that still doesn't exist. And that they can't be certain will exist. They'll put the whole future of humanity at risk for that. Um, just as in um, 1914, for example, they put uh, 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 the world's workers more than at risk. They sacrificed uh, millions upon millions of the world's working people for, for, for war. Now they'll gamble uh, our whole future. And we have to name the problem. The problem, the problem I think, quite clearly is the commitment of all our rulers, uh, or virtually all our rulers, to capitalism, uh, to the capitalist economic system. And capitalism, by its very essence, uh, subordinates people, the environment, and um, the planet to profit. Uh, under capitalism, the tyranny of profit is, in the last analysis, absolute. Right. Um, 
it's we need to explain to people, I think, why this is. It's sometimes thought that capitalism is just about personal greed. It is not. It's much more than that. Um, it is the fact that each capitalist unit uh, is engaged week by week, month by month, year by year, in a competitive struggle, a struggle waged in terms of profits uh, with its rivals, a struggle to accumulate capital. Uh, and that is of its very nature. That struggle goes on um, at the level of the two uh, pharmacists down my road who are busy competing with one another. It goes on at the level of Woolworths and Coles in uh, uh, Australia. It goes on at the level of Microsoft and Dell, of ExxonMobil, BP uh, uh, and Shell. Uh, they are all fighting with their rivals for their share of the market, their share of production, and trying to produce more to achieve more uh, 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 and more profit. And crucially, and this is very important, we need to understand as well, that this is, goes on at the level of states. Uh, it is not just something restricted to the corporations with the states uh, 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 and the state apparatuses and the governments outside of this process. They're engaged in it as well. And you see that in terms of USA versus China versus the EU versus Russia and India, uh, 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 Australia and so on. They are all uh, uh, in busily engaged in, in trying to ensure that USSA, USA Limited uh, is keeping up with or maintaining its dominant position vis-a-vis -vis China uh, limited and so on. Uh, so they are all uh, caught up in this. And once we uh, understand this clearly, uh, then we can see there is not actually going to be a capitalist solution to the problem of climate change. The slogan um, that uh, system change, not climate change, uh, is literally true. That is what we need. We need a change to eco-socialism, the only real alternative to capitalism. Now, um, when uh, we speak, therefore, about a left response to COP's failure, we should be speaking, I think, of an eco-socialist response, a, a, a response geared to uh, assembling the forces that can bring about such climate change, such system change. That means we need to be organizing to take the power out of the hands of the Bezos and Musks, the billionaires, the corporations and the politicians that represent them. Now, uh, here, I don't just mean pressurize the government and corporations. Um, I, I don't mean we shouldn't pressurize them. We were right to, or try to pressurize them. We were right uh, to mobilize over COP as we saw in Glasgow and many other places, because that put brought millions or hundreds of thousands of people into action. And that was, that was essential. We need to build a mass movement. It's part of the process of building a mass movement to overthrow the system. But ultimately our, gay, our goal is not just, I think, the hope that we can pressurize them into action. It has to be to go beyond that, uh, to take power out of their hands. Now, I want to say just a little bit about the tactics in this specific situation. Obviously, these tactics will vary from country to country, and I don't know the situation well enough in Australia to say anything that's meant to be suggesting, uh, you know, what you should do or anything like that, uh, or, or in, in many places. That depends on the local situation, and it's very, very important that 
um, tactics are geared to specific situations. But I do think some general comments can be made. <coughs> the first of these I want to make is that I think there is a pressure because of the question of time deadlines that people feel uh, and a certain desperation. Uh, and I'll come back to that. But there is a pressure um, towards what I would call substitutionism. By substitutionism, I mean the idea that what's important is not a mass movement, but the heroic self-sacrificing actions of individuals. You know, there's a long tradition of this in, in environmentalism. I mean, in a sense, Greenpeace was built on this. You know, a few people would sail out into the seas or a few people uh, or would scale buildings and so on. They had to be highly trained. There was no, you know, it was a, a belief in action by a tiny minority of a, uh, elite, dedicated people. And this will be there as well. It's a pressure that exists within Extinction Rebellion. The founder of Extinction Rebellion, Roger Hallam, who people may or may not know uh, here, uh, has very much gone in that direction. Uh, and even a, a well-known writer like Andreas Malm, who's made major contributions to eco-socialist thinking, um, is talking in those terms in his book, How to Blow Up a Pipeline. Now, uh, I, I don't think we should go in that direction. Um, I think that um, that direction is... Uh, uh, we have to be a bit careful here because, of course, some small actions by people will help build the movement. Uh, but we have to avoid actions that exclude people or, or a strategy which excludes people because mass mobilization is essential both as the most effective way of pressurizing our particular government and as a way of preparing for, for, future, uh, for future change. So I, I, uh, I don't want to be absolutist about this question of tactics, but I think strategically we have to retain a focus on the mass movement and we have to see ourselves as reaching out um, to working class people, to the mass of, of the, the population in our respective uh, countries. Uh, in this, I think the question of climate justice uh, and of a just transition is vital. We should oppose uh, carbon taxes and other measures that try to put the burden on working class people. Uh, and we should support, I think, demands that actually relate to the mass of people and they make life better for them. We shouldn't engage, I think, in the, 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 the general ruling class rhetoric that we all have to tighten our belts and sacrifice, by which they mean working class people have to tighten their belts and sacrifice, and they won't. Um, so we should campaign for things like, uh, I think, like free public transport, retrofitting uh, of homes and so on, Thing, things that it, it, uh, uh, um, actually as I say, make life better for, for working class people, a better uh, life. Um, I was in a big conference on um, Sunday, which a question was raised, should we be dropping everything else and just focusing on climate change? It's an interesting question, because of course it is the overarching issue and the most urgent issue ultimately facing humanity. Um, but I would say, my answer to that would be no, we shouldn't. I think, the, uh, again, depending where you are, a multitude of issues that are important and are important that we continue to be active on in order to have a chance of stopping climate change and changing the system. So questions like uh, housing crisis and homelessness, racism, workers' struggles, 
land rights, women's rights, those sort of questions, multitude of them. I think we do have to be active uh, on all, all of those as well, because in that way, we can draw people into an understanding also of the climate crisis and the need to um, challenge the system. Um, I would argue something like this, that we should try and embed commitment to climate justice in all the different movements and struggles. Um, I'll give it just an, an analogy here. Um, when we set up the global uh, eco-socialist network that uh, myself and, uh, uh, and Su your member Susan Price here uh, have been very much involved with, and, uh, um, when, when we set this up, we put in our founding principles that we were against racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, and all forms of national oppression. Because we were going to campaign on all those things all the time? No. We are primarily focused on environmental questions and so on. Uh, but because we considered that you couldn't actually have an, a left progressive movement in the present day that wasn't anti-racist, anti-sexist, etc. You'd just immediately fracture and break. So you can't build a movement that isn't committed to those, those principles. I think we also want a situation, we want to move towards the situation where every progressive movement, every struggle also sees its place within fighting for um, uh, uh, climate justice. Now, um, within that movement, I think we need to, when I'm coming to a conclusion here, I think we need to make the case for system change. We need to say that means revolution. Uh, of course, lots of people say system change and they mean different things by it. They mean that we need to change the system because we'll get our, our rulers to change their mindset. Um, in, in Ireland, the Green Party believed this. And that's what they would always say. We need a mindset and a new economic model. And on that basis, they went into government believing they could convert the uh, conservative capitalist parties to a new mindset. Of course, this didn't happen. All that happened was they became uh, complicit in running capitalism. Um, so I don't mean that. I mean, uh, we need an actual social revolution, a revolution from below by the mass of people. Uh, now, there is an important argument against this. I just want to say something about that, which always comes up. There's no time for that. We need change now. We can't wait for this revolution. Now, I'm not, of course, proposing that we that we wait for the revolution. We fight on everything right now. But I've heard this argument that we can't wait for your revolution for 20 years in the movement now. And I say we can't wait for capitalism to go green either. Um, and I would also argue that it is not true that the process of greening capitalism is a quicker process than the process of revolution. In fact, we'll wait forever if we wait for capitalism to go green. And you have to remember that if revolutions do break out, they can spread like wildfire. And look at what happened with the Arab Spring. And I think if you had a, 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 a social revolution, an eco-socialist revolution now, the inspiration would enable it to spread uh, very, very rapidly. Two final points, and I will conclude. Um, the first is about politics and political parties. Uh, again, I don't know the situation in Australia, but in much of the movement where I am and in Britain and elsewhere, there is a kind of, we don't want political parties involved. 
Uh, I think it's a mistake. Uh, partly because the process is inherently political. There has to be a political challenge to the system, including, I think, there has to be a challenge at the level of uh, electoralism. We need to fight eco-socialist politics in the electoral sphere and, you know, in every other sphere. And I think political parties, precisely because they're active on a range of issues, can bring people together and play a vital role in the movement. So I think we have to argue against that. And the last thing I want to say is that our experience in Ireland uh, is that using the term eco-socialist is very useful. Uh, it opens doors in the way that just using the old terminology about socialism doesn't, uh, because it makes clear that you're taking the whole question of um, the whole the whole question of the ecology and the environment absolutely central. That you understand that this has to be crucial to any notion of uh, a, a socialist or sustainable future, and it cuts across a lot of the arguments from from, from the past. So uh, my experience, my conclusion is um, that the left response to COP26 has to be uh, an eco-socialist response. Uh, uh, and I would uh, ask people here as well, if you're interested in this, you might be interested in the uh, Global Eco-Socialist Network, and I'll put a link to that in the chat. So thank you very much. Thank you, Jacob. All right. Um, thank you very much. Um, thank you very much for that, um, John. Um, so, yeah, I'm now going to introduce our next speaker, um, who, which is um, Sarah Halfway, um, National Co-Convener of Social Science and is also an uh, um, organiser with um, VARPA. So pass it on to Sarah. Hey, comrades. Yeah, I too just want to acknowledge that I'm joining you from Waterrun Country um, and acknowledge that we're meeting on stolen land um, so uh, our Prime Minister, uh, Scott Morrison, made Australia even more of a climate pariah at the United Nations Climate Change Conference or COP26 in Glasgow. Um, subsequently, the media attempted to distract us immediately after with some conflicted outrage about Morrison's leaking of text messages between him and French President Emmanuel Macron um, around the cancellation of the submarine deal as if that was like the most important thing or controversial thing that came out of COP26. Um, the real disaster is the coalition's refusal to join um, one of the main actions coming out of that conference, which was the global pledge to cut methane emissions. The pledge um, had been announced at the UN General Assembly meeting in September um, and over the course of COP26, the number of signatories increased um, from over 60 nations to more than 100. And that included countries like the United States, the European Union and Brazil. Instead, Australia sided with China, Russia, India and Iran, um, among other big methane emitters by refusing to sign up. We also saw our energy minister, Angus Taylor, um, stating that the government had a whole-of-economy approach and it would not be setting any sector-specific targets. Um, and his spurious response stems from the government's overwhelming focus on the exploration, mining and export of gas. And this was very apparent at COP26, um, where we had the oil and gas company Santos um, hosted at our pavilion at the conference 
um, apparently at the insistence of the energy minister. So our government's so-called plan for net zero emissions by 2050 includes no specific gas or industry targets and no new policies. And it relies on untested carbon capture and storage technology, all the while continuing to allow um, for a rise in fossil fuel emissions. And worse than a fringe dweller, um, Morrison was actively involved in undermining the G20 climate goals at the Rome summit before COP26, as well as leading the opposition to the 2030 methane emission reduction pledge. And he also successfully opposed plans to phase out coal power in advanced economies by 2030. Further, Morrison used his final comments to the summit to oppose the abolition of fossil fuels and instead demanded that the focus be on adaptation and empowerment. The G20 summit did not adopt a firm goal for net zero by 2050. Um, instead, it agreed to end public financing for coal power plants, but without any exact dates and with words implying the importance of reaching net zero by or around the middle of the century. Um, it's clear that while other capitalist powers wanted to push a more climate-friendly image, um, they were also happy for Morrison to push his climate denier barrow or, you know, perhaps we, you know, we've kind of progressed beyond climate denying to climate action delaying, I think is where we're at now. The United States President Joe Biden and uh, Britain's Prime Minister Boris Johnson want to look good, um, something that Morrison helps them achieve without fundamentally challenging corporate fossil fuel interests. So despite finally signing on to the net zero 2050 target, the Australian government's target of a 26 to 28% reduction in carbon emissions compared to 2005 levels by 2030 lags behind other capitalist countries. The US is aiming to reduce emissions by at least 50% and Britain is aiming for more than 60%. There's a widespread understanding and growing proof that renewable energies are reliable, they're cheaper than fossil fuels and they create more jobs. Green capitalists with the support of governments are deploying them. However, their solution to the climate emergency will not come by waiting for the market to catch up. Climate activist Bill McKibben told um, ABC's 7.30 report on November 4 that the market will ultimately force a change away from fossil fuels. However, he said ultimately is not good enough for the crisis we're facing. Emissions from fossil fuel use in industry, transport and mining have continued to rise despite a temporary reduction at the start of the pandemic last year. Even if we could all change from gas-powered energy to solar rooftops, this does not change what McKibben described as the carbon and emissions being deeply embedded in the guts of the system. Rather than focusing on lifestyle change, the real job of individuals, he said, is to join together to force basic political and economic change that will rip carbon out of the guts of these systems. Most of the media coverage and advocacy at COP26 has been severely misinformed. We've seen politicians, business leaders, journalists and NGO advocates talk about net zero 2050 and the 1.5 degrees Paris goal in the same breath and get away with it. 
it's been a gross underestimation of the climate condition um, and quite delusional um, and very few seem to be calling it out. Um, Net Zero 2050 is a con, um, as Climate Code Red has reported. Um, there's been a, a breakthrough report published in August this year. Um, central bankers um, have said that net zero by 2050 scenarios, um, sorry, central bankers have net zero 2050 scenarios in which fossil fuels still constitute 50% of our primary energy use in 2050. So when the Murdoch media endorses this net zero 2050 climate goal, um, we know it's a problem and not the answer. 2050 is so far away, it's just a reason for further procrastination. So judging by the G20 outcome, um, even net zero 2050 and a coal phase out, um, well, we saw, like they didn't pass muster at Glasgow. China is on a trajectory for net zero by 2060 and India for net zero by 2070. But 2050 is not the critical goal. 2025 and 2030 need to be the focus um, and COP26 has not approached anything close of resembling what needs to be done. The models producing the 1.5 degree scenarios are not up to scratch and the current climate models are not capturing all of the risk, including the stalling of the Gulf Stream, polar ice melt and the uptick in extreme weather events. Carbon dioxide and methane release from deep permafrost are routinely not included in the climate modelling. Climate models do not account well for increased warming due to loss of Arctic sea ice. Um, and the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or the IPCC 2021 report, gives a best estimate of equilibrium, equilibrium climate sensitivity of three degrees Celsius but including factors such as slow feedbacks or carbon stores um, and reflectivity changes, warming could be as high as five to six degrees for a doubling of carbon dioxide for a range of climate states between glacial conditions and an ice-free Antarctica. So beyond the make-believe of 1.5 degree scenarios full of overshoot, technological dreaming, high risks of failure and not fully accounting for carbon cycle feedbacks, there are some basic realities. The first uh, is that the world is likely to hit 1.5 degree average global warming by 2030, um, regardless of the emissions path over the next decade. We're already currently at 1.2, and the most recent IPCC reports show that current climate models project on average a warming of 0.3 degrees for the decade to 2030. Secondly, there is no carbon budget for a 1.5 degree target. Um, it's a figment of modelers' imaginations. Renowned climate scientists and former head of climate um, at NASA, James Hansen, warned that the rate of global warming during the next 25 years could be double what it was in the previous 50. Rising emissions, declining aerosols, air pollution, and natural climate cycles will contribute to faster warming, as will greater stratification of the ocean with a hotter layer of water on top. 
So in September, the IPCC reported that global emissions will rise 16% by 2030 based on the 2010 levels under government's plans put forward since the start of last year. At the opening of COP26, uh, the British Prime Minister warned that we are at one minute to midnight on the doomsday clock. And at the G20 meeting, he warned that humanity, civilization, and society can go backwards as well as forwards. And when they start to go wrong, they can go wrong at extraordinary speed and then referred to the Roman Empire. Um, Professor Shallon Huber, director um, at the Potsdam Institute, is even more blunt. He stated, I'm telling you that we're putting our kids onto a global school bus that will with 98% probability end in a deadly crash. Glasgow has not gotten within a mile of pledges to halve emissions by 2030, and any reputable climate scientist will say that means warming is going to shoot past two degrees warming. And then that gets us into the land um, of further accelerated uh, warming. And why? Why have we not achieved um, anything at Glasgow? Um, I think John's largely already outlined this because capitalism isn't going to fix itself. It is inherently profit-driven, extractivist and destructive. At this point, anyone who doesn't explicitly state this or tries to claim that we can vote or consume our way out of a climate crisis ranges somewhere between misinformed to a con artist or a snake oil salesman. This year, the United Nations Secretary General sounded the climate code red alarm as the IPCC report was released. If this change in rhetoric is to mean anything, it is this. Forget about 2050, it's the next five years that matter. Um, so despite uh, Scott Morrison's post-Glasgow con conversion to electric vehicles, um, Morrison stands exposed uh, as a climate laggard. But our Labor opposition party is still walking down both sides of the street. Labor's climate spokesperson, Chris Bowen, gave a masterful demonstration of this on ABC. He's claimed that Labor and government will take methane seriously and that it has plans in place to reduce methane emissions by working cooperatively with, with industry and agriculture. He then argued against calling on the Morrison government to sign the international pledges to reduce methane emission and phase out coal. He's also justified gas exploration, including fracking in the Northern Territory, despite the International Energy Agency's call for zero new fossil fuel developments. Labor want to appear as if they have a climate action policy while telling big business they will continue to support fossil fuel extraction. And this, is, this approach is completely at odds with what is needed to stay as close as possible to the 1.5 degree target and to give our species the best possible chance of avoiding um, an unlivable planet. The most important events at COP26 um, didn't occur inside, but in meetings and demonstrations outside. Um, some 100,000 people, mostly young people, marched for climate justice in Glasgow on November 26. And I just want to quickly share this image with you. Um, hopefully you can see that. 
Um, Morrison, along with Murdoch, Putin, Trump and Bolsonaro, were all correctly identified as climate cr criminals. However, it's not about the individuals. It's about the economic system of capitalism that is not broken. It's working as it was intended and will continue to drive us over the edge of a climate catastrophe. I'm just going to stop share. Um, the lesson from the G20 and COP26 is that it's not enough to just change an extreme climate foot-dragging government for a seemingly climate-friendly, big-talking but small-action capitalist alternative. We need a people-powered revolt against them both. We need less blah, 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 as Greta puts it. Politicians of one ilk or another are not going to save us. Neither is Elon Musk or Bezos by sending us into space. Um, however, it might be helpful if they put themselves and the likes of Gina Reinhart, Twiggy Forrest and Rupert Murdoch in a rocket directly into the sun. We need an eco-socialist alternative that puts people and the planet before profits. Thanks, comrades. All right. Um, so thank you very much for that, um, Sarah. Now, just a, um, a few kind of things. Um, we're going to kind of begin um, kind of discussion um, just um, kind of about um, now, um, but basically just some housekeeping. Um, how this will work is that we'll take people in rounds of free. Um, so simply just indicate um, in the chat box, or you could also alternatively use your hand raise, um, the hand raise feature, which I'll, um, I'll also count as an indication for discussion. Um, so yeah, everyone has like three minutes um, to speak. And then after rounds of three, um, we'll go take it back to the speakers. So yeah, you can make comments or, or questions and, and so on. Now, just a few things. I just want to make, I guess, a few announcements um, while people might be thinking about what they want to kind of say. Now, just want to note um, that Socialist Alliance um, is actually going to be standing candidates um, in the upcoming federal election in Victoria, WA, New South Wales and Queensland. Um, I can only kind of speak to um, our candidates um, in Melbourne, which are Felix Stance and Angela Carr will be candidates for the Senate. And of course, we have Socialist Alliance councillor Sue Bolton will be standing electorate of wills. Now, the other thing while we're talking about, um, while I mentioned that, um, Socialist Alliance is currently running um, an electoral registration campaign because, sim um, simply put, the Liberal government with the backing of Labor has recently kind of passed new laws, which are kind of very undemocratic because they want to be part, they'll pass to protect the established parties and disadvantage any minor party. So essentially... This law requires um, social parties like Social Science to have at least 1,500 members in order to be registered. So, yeah, if you'd like to help us retain our electoral registration and see us appear in the ballot papers when the federal election um, is called, we encourage you to take up our free membership option to support Social Science um, in, the, um, in, in terms of our electoral registration. I'll just put, quickly put the, the link um, for people um, in the chat right now. Now, the, um, just the other kind of, just a few other sort of announcements just want to make. Uh, make. Um, Social Science is um, the co-host of this forum. So if you'd like to find out more about Social Science or if you'd like to participate in our socialism and Marxism discussions or get our activist calendar, you can stay in touch um, with the link that I'm just about to put in the chat box. 
Um, also want to note, Green Left is also the co-host of this forum. Um, Green Left has a website, a weekly print copy, um, social media, and a weekly Green Left radio program, Free CR, as well as doing regular podcasts. You can become a Green Left supporter for as little as $5 a month, and the link to become a supporter will also be put in the chat shortly as well. Now, just one sort of announcement to sort of make. Um, Socialist Alliance is actually going to be participating in um, an international conference with um, various sort of different socialist groups around the Asia Pacific, which is the Socialism 2021 conference, overcoming um, the multiple crises of capitalism. So that's going to be happening from the 27th to the 28th of November and the 4th to the 5th of December at 1pm every um on those days on in, in sort of AD, AEDT time, so I, uh, Australian and Sydney kind of time zones. Um, so it's, it's conference is going to be have around nine panel sessions, four keynote speakers, 32 speakers, and, of course, the majority of speakers will be based in Southeast Asia. Now, I'll post um, the link to this conference um, in the chat shortly. Um, but, yeah, just so um, there are some another announcements I was going to make about some local events, but I'll just keep, I'll, I just thought I'd keep it to that because this is an online national forum. So maybe when we go back to discussion, um, when our discussion finishes, I'll just make some announcements about some of the other upcoming local events. But you can also look up them up on the Green Left website. Now, I guess without further ado, um, I've got a few, just few indications. So I'll take Susan Price um, and then Royal. Thanks, Jacob. Um, and thanks, John and Sarah, for your talks. I think they uh, they complemented each other really well. Uh, I'm, I guess, particularly, John, because I'm aware that um, Jen, the Global Eco-Socialist Network, had a workshop at the People's Summit. I was just wondering whether you could provide a little bit of a flavour of um, of that event uh, in terms of, you know, bringing together uh, the voices of the climate justice movement. Um, I mean, in a way, you know, I participated in a um, in an interesting workshop on the on P the Pacific and deep sea mining in the Pacific that Jen um, actually helped uh, co-sponsor um, to make that happen. And you know, it was very very clear that a lot of the people from the parts of the world that are most vulnerable and impacted by climate change um, were actually pretty well excluded um, for the most part from the from the COP because the British government, um, you know, considered them red from red flag zones or red zones um, in terms of the COVID outbreak. So there weren't, unfortunately, not a lot of actual delegates who were even able to attend um, in person to um, participate in the COP or the People's Summit. But, um, but certainly it was very encouraging to see, you know, the, the, the footage of, you know, the 100,000 strong protest in Glasgow. And then I think the day before the climate strike, um, I think was about 30,000. I remember posting on Facebook, um, students who walked out of school and, and protested that day. Um, but yeah, just be kind of interested to hear a little bit more of a, I suppose, reflection on the, the People's Summit as a um, an event. And I guess the, you know, how, how, um, how much influence eco-socialist ideas, you know, are having. Um, it, it sort of feels to me that the 
you know, the urgency and the of the situation of the climate crisis, you know, is leading people to draw more radical solutions. But um, it feels like we've still got a long way to go to, um, you know, to to really, I guess, for for people to realise um, that change is not going to happen from the top down, but um, has to be built from the bottom up. So, yeah, I'd just be just be keen to hear a bit more from you about the about the summit and about that those discussions uh, around eco-socialist politics that happened there. Thanks. Uh, um, good afternoon here from the Philippines. It's uh, Roy, no? R-O-Y. Um, greetings from the groups here in the Philippines. We are in the process of forming a Green Left Alliance. So I listened to John and uh, was it Sarah earlier? And from John's point, we certainly do agree we cannot do this without political parties. We have to capture government. Either you go through a, through a painful uh, armed revolution or we go to the polls. We simply have to choose how to do this. We choose to go to the polls, a more peaceful means. We cannot do this with simply activists. I've been an activist myself for so many years. We cannot do this with just advocacy or just modeling on the ground. It has to be state-led now. And from Sarah's point, she is absolutely right. The next five, or in our case, six years is most crucial. The Philippines is an early onset country. Our islands are getting denuded by sea level rise five times higher than the rest of the world. We have uh, 20 to 30% of our coastal population are expected to be and that needed, would needed to be relocated in the next 15 years. The next three governments with three terms each for the next 10 to 15 years is most crucial to us. If we cannot get into government and make these painful policies that has to be implemented for the betterment of everyone in, um, against capitalism and for a true eco-socialist alternative, then we're in a big shithole. Our group here is attempting to challenge major parties. We lack the support, we lack financial and organizational support, but we are fielding a president, a vice president, three senators, a party list, which is a, uh, a sort of a um, representation mechanism in the lower house, that allows for voting the group rather than the individual. So we are also writing in a partner list in several local positions. We're doing all we can here because the problem is so grave. Anything that anything and everything that you can support us with in solidarity and more will be welcome. The 2022 May elections in the Philippines will be most crucial to environmentalists. Those who will not enter into electoral politics here and cannot choose to go, in, to go into an armed revolution, they, are, they will be failed environmentalists because our problem here is so grave. We have to do something. Thank you. All right, thanks for that. Um, now the next speaker, I'll, the next person I'll just take um, from the chat was Alex. So I'll take Alex. Um, those who still have their hands up, don't worry, I've noted you down. So um, we'll get to you um, shortly. So take Alex. Yeah, uh, thanks, Jacob, and thanks to all the speakers. It was actually a very, very interesting from um, from both the speakers. 
I guess the 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 one point that I wanted to make, I think there is a, I think it's very hard for us in Australia because the Morrison government is so far out on a limb in the in the sort of you know climate denial end of the spectrum uh, that you know it basically it seems like a sort of you know there's a lot of there's a lot of mainstream political forces here basically saying I oh, looked at Joe Biden looked at Boris Johnson they they've they've got better policies in Australia which is true. Uh, but basically, that, that, that's the pressure for a for a decent solution. And I guess, to me, I think that that is a uh, like that's that's going to lead us up a up the garden path. Like a like a you know, I think that sort of list of um uh, you know climate criminals that um that Sarah that Sarah um you know, highlighted. I mean, like you know, totally hundred percent correct. But like people like Joe Biden should be included in that climate criminal list as as well as like you know the, the Labor leaders in Australia. Um, etc. And there was an article in one of the left-wing publications of the US, I forget which one, just in the recent times, and it was basically saying that uh, the United States, rather than China, uh, is the one to blame for the, um, you know, for the failure of the COP. And one thing I didn't realise is that, I mean, in, in the media here in Australia, we've had this big, uh, this being mentioned numerous times, I've heard it over and over again, that India was the one that was responsible for the change in the word from phase out coal to phase down coal. But what nobody has mentioned that I've seen in the mainstream media here is that several days earlier, India had actually put forward a more substantial, like a more a stronger climate action position, which was basically to phase out all fossil fuels. And that was rejected by countries like the United States and Australia. And the the, the final thing is to phase down unabated coal, which is basically a, um, you know, a, a nod to the so-called carbon capture and storage. Uh, which is obviously a you know, it's a it's a fake um, a fake technology that 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 you know that's not going to be not going to work for anybody. Um, but the only countries that could even you know can make a plausible sort of pretense at it is basically the wealthy countries. So to phase down unabated coal is actually a a not you know like is a is a policy favourable to the wealthy countries and not the sort of the the, the global south. And I mean, I guess to me, I feel like it is sort of quite offensive. All the journalists that have been saying it over and over again, like there's talking about India and China as the ones that are responsible, even asking the question about what about China's contribution, what about India's contribution. I feel like that is so, uh, like it's offensive in the in the context of you know the role that the Australian government is playing, um, that anybody should even be talking about you know, what those other countries are doing. For Australia to be such a wealthy country to have. Uh, you know, uh, you know, at the top of the range in terms of resource for renewable, um, uh, you know, renew, you know, implementing renewable um, energies. Uh, it's you know, we need to basically put you know uh, a million times more pressure on the Australian government, and that's sort of you know, I think, I guess that's to me, I think that's actually that's the difficult thing for Australians to sort of to look at is coming out of this internationally. It sort of seems like there are other countries with with much better policies, but but the, the truth of the matter is, I mean, you know, Britain and the United States, they're both, um, uh, you know, approving new fossil fuel developments, as is Australia, and and really, yeah, we just need to have that total elimination of, you know, total phase out of fossil fuels. Thanks. Okay, um, thanks for that, Alex. So I'm just going to give, um, I'll go I'll go to the next round of, um, of contributors um, soon, but I was just going to give an opportunity for John and Sarah to respond to some of the comments and the questions. So, yeah, maybe I'll, I'll start with John and then Sarah. Big questions there. Um, first of all, responding to Susan's very 
pertinent questions about the specifics about uh, what happened in Glasgow and the People's Summit and so on. Um, uh, the People's Summit was a very large event with innumerable different sessions in it. And if you're, you know, I, I was sitting in Dublin, I couldn't possibly attend very many of them because, you know, uh, general political life was going on at the same time. Um, but the, the, the Global Eco-Socialist Network, GEN for short session, that, that was, was I think pretty successful. Um, we had over a hundred people uh, on the call and we had a broad range of speakers such as um, uh, Sabrina Fernandez from Brazil, uh, Michael Lowy, the veteran uh, uh, socialist philosopher and eco-socialist from Paris, uh, Trevor Nguane from South Africa and so on. And we had a very good uh, um, uh, discussion at, at that. So I was very, very pleased about that. I think overall it was a very good event. Um, with a, a big international coverage and, uh, and take-up. I just want to say about the, the, the role of the COP26 coalition. This was set up initially by War on Want and then and supported by Friends of the Earth. And I, I thought that it played overall a very good role. I was sceptical at the beginning. I thought that... Um, in general, the kind of dominance of the movement by NGOs and charities and so on is often not helpful, but it was pretty radical, very progressive. And I think that the um, general framework of a day of action for climate justice was one that was internationally generalizable uh, and nationally generalizable. Um, people should know there was in Britain, there were demonstrations, there was 100,000 in Glasgow, and it was obviously a fantastic demonstration. Everybody who was on it, I know, thought it was brilliant and, and, and uh, very radical uh, and very young. Uh, but there was also a sizable demonstration in London. But in some ways, more importantly, there were big demonstrations in towns up and down the country. Uh, a friend of mine in Bristol put, was central to putting maybe 7,000 people on the streets of Bristol, which is a you know, a medium-sized British town, that's very impressive. And we put demonstrations on the streets of Ireland in Dublin, Glasgow, um, uh, Derry, Galway, uh, and so on, uh, uh, across Ireland. And um, the, the, there was a definite shift in the mood, talking about radicalisation and the influence of eco-socialist ideas. Uh, of course, Susan is right, there's a long way to go, but a definite shift in the sense that um, uh, in Dublin, it was, it was called a, a march for climate justice in Dublin. The left, my organisation in Ireland, People Before Profit, was absolutely central to it, to the organisation of it and to the march. And I was giving out leaflets for... Um, uh, for the Global Eco-Socialist Network, uh, which said, you know, one side said, name the, name the problem, capitalism. The other side said, name the solution, eco-socialism. They were very well received by the large majority of people, um, which is different. You know, I, I've been through many years of people basically saying, well, we don't want to know about any of that stuff. We just want climate action now. And system change, not climate change, was probably the predominant slogan on the demonstration. Of 
you know, something like three to 5,000 people in Dublin. So uh, that's, a, there's, a, there's a real shift there uh, in that direction. That's why I concluded by speaking about um, the, uh, uh, you know, using the names eco-socialism, making the case for eco-socialism uh, and so on. Um, I want to, to uh, the, the um, issues raised by uh, Roy from the Philippines are major issues of socialist strategy. Um, and uh, I think these are things that we all need to be discussing uh, and uh, debating. I'll just respond to this in terms of my personal opinions here. Uh, on this. Um, I, I don't think we should pose the question as either parliamentary elections, the polls, or armed revolution. I don't think that's the central uh, uh, or the right strategic options. The reason, the reason I say that is Armed revolution means to people guerrilla struggle usually. A small minority of people, and I, this, this has particular tradition and appeal in certain countries rather than others, but you can't wage a guerrilla struggle in Australia or in Ireland, for example, not under modern conditions, uh, and doesn't solve the problem. So I don't think, uh, or a small group of people trying to stage it, I don't think that should be an option for us. On the other hand, the problem is that if you just say, well, we're going to use the um, parliamentary elections and so on, this leaves out the whole problem of the capitalist state. Uh, and you winning an election doesn't win you power. Um, I, you know, you can look at what happened to Syriza in Greece or look at what happened to, um, uh, even more pertinently in some ways, what happened to Salvador Allende in Chile and so on. Uh, I think we should take part in elections, but we should be use elections to be tribunes of the people and to raise the consciousness of people, because I do think we need um, mass people power from below. So that's just um, uh, my, my view um, on, on that particular thing. I understand Alex's uh, frustrations about, you know, with um, a government like Morrison and then saying, well, blame India and China. But from an international perspective, we do have to face up to the role played by India and China. I, I don't mean let our own governments off the hook. Not for one second should we do that. The main enemy is at home, as they say. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, this is going to be a global problem. Uh, and uh, we can't solve the problem in any one country. So, um I, I think we have to pose this whole thing in international terms, which includes uh, 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 Modi and Xi Jinping and, uh, 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 and China, which, you know, in absolute terms is the biggest uh, um, carbon emitter in, uh, in the world, and the biggest coal producer by a mile, um, you know, uh, in, 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 in the world. So we do have to... Uh, to, to face up uh, to, to, to that problem. And um, the last comment I want to make, um, Sarah, in her excellent talk, I think we were, without any pre-arrangement, just ended up more or less completely uh, aligned in what we were saying. Um, I think uh, she quoted Bill McGibbon saying that we need to rip out fossil fuels from the guts of the system. 
Uh, yes, uh, this is true. But it, there isn't actually, I'm afraid, a mechanism for ripping out the fossil fuels from the guts of the system without killing the system, um, i.e. replacing the system with something else. So I think that that's a formula, a dramatic formula of words used by Bill McGibbon. He needs to take one step further, in my view. I think we have to be, um, you know, I, I, don't, I don't think, if you look at the role that fossil fuels play in the uh, international capitalist economy, you aren't going to simply be able to reach in and take it out um, it, uh, it, uh, and then carry on with capitalist business. We're going to have to change the system to do that. That's my view. I'll stop there. Okay. I think some, or maybe Sarah, did you want to make some response to questions? Yeah, just briefly. I just wanted to take up Roy's um, commentary on elections as well, because, yeah, I think it is um, important. And this development, um, comrade in Malaysia, of a broader electoral alliance sounds really exciting. So we'll be watching from here and learning. Um, yeah, I think, well, I mean, in terms of socialists running in elections, definitely that that's our position in socialist alliances that we run. And I've noticed within our own sort of organisation, even more so in the last handful of years is that we are looking for those broader alliances, probably like not on the scale um, that comrades are having um, in the, sorry, in the Philippines, not Malaysia, in the Philippines, um, but even for like finding other progressive independents or, or just broadening out from our own ranks or Indigenous activists, anything that um, sort of has that broader reach. Um, so you definitely should continue to expand on that. I think probably our challenge here is that um, I think largely we're sort of in competition with the Greens Party in the electoral sphere um, and they're quite good at sounding progressive or sounding radical at times and I guess on the surface for people that aren't um, particularly political it's hard for them to tell the difference between well what's the difference between the Greens and Socialist Alliance because all your policies at election time sound the similar um, but I think like probably that the starkest illustration was the um, Adam Bant, who's the leader of the Greens Party, put something up on Facebook the other day. And it was kind of along the lines of, you know, if you want to live or if you want a livable planet, vote one Greens at the next federal election. Um, so it was just completely, completely parliamentarist. Um, you know, they, they don't put resources into... Um, that extra parliamentary intervention. So, um, yeah, I guess I, I'm largely echoing John. I, I don't see it as being one or the other. I think both are part of the solution. And um, if you have one on your own, I think I agree with you, Roy, that you're going to fail. Um, yeah, I'll leave it there so we can have more speakers. All right, um, thanks um, for that. Um, so now I'm going to go on to the next um, people in terms of discussion. So I'm just going, going over my list. So I'll take Alan um, and then I'll take Sue um, from the Melbourne office and then Leon. So um, pass it on to Alan. Yeah, um, thanks for that. Um, in a, uh, a recent get up uh, report, uh, a posting, um, a uh, citizens uh, group in the Netherlands uh, won a case against uh, the government uh, 
on uh, government inaction on climate. Um, given that the uh, legislative system in, uh, is, uh, it protects uh, um, capitalism or, uh, and encourages it, uh, um, is, that, is that a way to go for the future? Is that a, is that a, um, a way, uh, is that a direction um, um, we, we should be taking? Any comments, please? Yeah, so I just had three um, points I wanted to raise and see if there could be a response. Firstly, the first one is more for John Molyneux, because um, in Australia we've got a climate movement which is totally, almost totally, not quite totally, but almost totally dominated by the NGOs. And the impact of that has been that it's totally let, let the politicians and the companies, corporations, off the hook, basically. They haven't really been challenged. And we've had um, probably very few serious mobilisations. And one of the things which is very apparent is that the NGOs in Australia, because they all like to do their branded actions, so they prefer a smaller action that was branded for their particular organisation rather than working together in some kind of alliance to bring mass mobilisations out. And I think this has been a massive problem in Australia for quite a few years, although it was broken a little bit when School Strike for Climate started. And, you know, I mean, we've sort of been trying to find different ways of trying to build um, more rad uh, radical action alliances. Um, and anyway, we've got to keep working on it in terms of socialist alliance. But it would be interesting to know get a sense of, you know, in your part of the world, John, is this in a problem of NGOs just sitting on the back of the movement and stopping the movement from mobilising? Um, is that, uh, have, has the left and the activist wing of the movement managed to get around that and, um, and able to get a lot more happening in the movement? Um, so that's one point. Second point, I'm wondering, I understand that military emissions um, have been exempted from all of the targets at the COP26. Um, and I'm just wondering, there's very rarely any discussion in the climate movement about military emissions. I mean, I know the focus is going to be on, um, you know, trying to get rid of all fossil fuel, because that's the basis of the entire capitalist economy. But, um, but it, uh, I think um, it does worry me that military military missions just gets, you know, um, gets off scot free, really. And um, anyway, I'm just wondering, in uh, for either Sarah or or John or anyone else listening, if they want to comment on that issue. And then I guess the last issue in terms of Australia, where the governments have been so rotten that for a lot of people um, or some people in the climate movement sort of probably do believe the market will solve some things because they can see these solar panels rolling out on people's um, rooftops, et cetera, um, but don't necessarily understand that when the market is providing renewable energy, it's not necessarily 
done in the best way because each of the renewable energy companies is competing against each other. And so you have, uh, it's not as um, coordinated or, or um, not as, a, it's, it's not necessarily, it, it sort of is creating a false impression in, with some in the movement that somehow the market will be able to do what the governments haven't been able to do. But anyway, it would be interesting um, what sort of discussions have been had along the, around those issues. Um. Uh, thanks, uh, John and Sarah. Uh, look, I think Australia, Morrison's government was so serious about COP26 that he only stayed there for three days and pissed off. And uh, the fact that Santos was there also uh, putting bits of coal in his pocket to reassure the mining industry back home. Now, one of the things from the forums at COPE was Ursula, one of the politicians and UN leaders, uh, was saying that measuring CO2 abatement is important because you can talk and say, but if there's no evidence from the measurements, then you don't know which direction things are going, good or bad. Uh, now, COP26 said it's going to be climate neutral from that event. And, you know, 400 private jets went in, hundreds of commercial jets went in. Is anyone, John, is anyone going to be looking at holding them to account on whether they can stick to their, their truth just in hold, uh, having a uh, carbon neutral forum? And also, were there any standout people that came from COP26 out to the crowd? Any politicians? senior public servants uh, and, you know, have a solidarity moment out there with the audience. And were there any forums inside COPE that allowed the people demonstrating or the punters from outside to come in? Uh, and, you know, I just want to know that information and, and also whether, whether the uh, Adam Smith's grave opened up to be discussed in even the uh, politicians on how they've been uh, subsidising capitalism as well, uh, John, and how the system's not working the way the capitalists want to work. And can you comment on those things? All right, thanks, um, Leon. Um, just um, because there's actually only, I only got like one more indication um, about contribution. So I think before I get the speakers to wrap up, I'll just get it, um, not necessarily wrap up, they might be, there might be time for more discussion, but um, before I get the speakers to kind of respond, I was going to get um, if Chris Greenwood um, wanted to make a contribution. Um, yeah, feel free. And then I'll Thank pass you, it on to the speakers. <clears throat> Thank you, Jacob. Can you hear me okay? Yep, can hear you fine. Thank you. Thanks. I'm in Bath, UK, and um, I have a global role in that... Um, Back in 2012, I began, I started a, um, a global arts project which focuses on these sort of issues solely. It focuses on the big global issues. My background is um, I, I first um, attended my, I attended my first um, protest marches and campaigning things in 1969. Um, so I go back some way and throughout my life, um, whatever else I've been doing, I've always been involved in activism across environmental issues, across peace issues, and across a variety of different social justice issues. I'm a quarter Irish, so I'm acutely aware and acutely um, sensitive and conscious of um, British 
colonial history. And I, I want to state that here loudly and clearly. And I'm acutely aware that that British colonial history has run all over the world. We are the most extensive colonial nation the earth has ever seen, for which, you know, how can I apologize enough for, for this? It, it, and sadly, it's, it's ongoing through, um, um, through um, capitalist colonialism. But what I really wanted to say was, was quite brief, really. Um, we are all on a rock. We're flying through space throughout human history. The poor have always been hanging on to this rock for dear life and, and, and not necessarily succeeding. Um, the rich of today have made themselves, uh, and they are a minority, the poor is the majority. The rich have made themselves more comfortable, but only by exploiting the whole planet and the poor. And that is ongoing. It hasn't, we're not talking about the past there. But in, I want to introduce a, a bigger global view, because I think that's what's under threat. The whole, the whole you know, human civilization and the planet is under threat. And you recognize that here. It runs through all of what you're saying. So what I want to emphasize is that we, <clears throat> in the world today, we really only have two <clears throat> dominant economies. One is the capitalist, in fact, hyper-capitalist, economies that you've been speaking about very critically, and I, I join you fully on that. And we also have Chinese communism, the Chinese form of communism, the Soviet form's gone, that's in the past, leaving behind all its damages to people and planet. Um, and this, um, today's neoliberal capitalism and communism are both all about extractionism, materialism, and in the West, in, in the capitalist countries, consumerism, which sends its supply chains out all across the world, abusing the planet, habitats, species, um, uh, many of which are under threat. And, and the last of those species is the one that's causing all the problems. That's us, isn't it? Um, so the world has to fully decarbonize both capitalist and communist economies, but neither can actually, neither of those can survive if they decarbonize, but they've got to, we've got to, somehow this has got to happen. So the revolution is much, much bigger, I think, than even people here have been saying. And I think it's, it's absolutely key in today's world that the kind of discussions and conversation that you are promoting here with the priorities you are promoting, I, I think whatever form that can be taken forward, however it can be spread, whoever it can be spread by, is what is needed as the first step. That's got to be ongoing. So I, I applaud all of you here for the work you're obviously doing and, and the thinking you're putting into all of this. And, um, uh, you know, I think COP26 kind of is a focal point bringing together a lot of these ideas and coming out of COP26, it's essential like you are doing here to, you know, apply ourselves critically to the whole set of ideas. Um, so I just want to warmly appreciate what you're doing here. And um, please keep going. I'll shut up now. Thank you. Okay, thanks, Chris. Um, now I'll give, um, I might give an opportunity um, for the kind of speakers to kind of respond. Um, at this point, there doesn't seem to be any indications. Um, so we might wrap up the forum now um, by in terms of John and, and Sarah, but of course people are still free if they want, I'm giving like a final call out, if anyone would like to contribute um, to the discussion, they, um, 
they're free to, uh, but otherwise if no one indicates, um, uh, um, then I might just pass it on to John and Sarah to make respond to all the comments, but also maybe make up some wrap-up comments. So, yeah, because at this point it doesn't seem to be there's any indication. So pass it on to John then. Okay, thank you very much. Look, there's a host of issues raised there, and I probably will miss some of them in trying to... Uh, to to respond and I apologise for, for that but I'll try and cover what I can um, I was intrigued by Sarah's comments about uh, the, the relation, your relationship to the Greens and elections and so on uh, and uh, I think the Irish experience here is, is quite useful um, generally speaking I find that people so eco-socialists when they speak about the Green Parties, have very, very different experiences. That is, the Green Parties in different countries play very, very different roles. But I think there's a pattern, and I would put it this way, that because the Greens are not anti-capitalist, not really, not anti-the capitalist system, or in my experience everywhere, the consequence is that they sound more left-wing the further away they are from power the less likely they are actually to get office. They're more radical. And the closer they get to office, the less radical. And then when they get in office, forget it. They cease to be radical at all. Um, so the British Green Party is much more radical sounding than the Irish Green Party. A friend of mine was saying, what about Ireland to, to them? And they said, oh, that's nothing to do with us. But actually they are linked and they are, have a similar outlook. But in Ireland, the Green Party is, because of the Irish political system, has been in office twice now. Once during the time of the economic crash in 2008, when it went along with all the austerity policies pursued by um, uh, the main capitalist government, Fianna Foyle, um, all of which made ordinary people pay for the crisis and which resulted in the parliamentary devastation of Fianna Foyle, which had been the traditional ruling party of Ireland. And the wipeout of the Greens, they lost all their seats. They've recovered since then, but it's time has passed. People have forgotten they recovered, they've done well. They do get a big vote from people who are concerned about the climate. People say, oh, those things are going wrong, vote Green. Like Sarah said, they were saying, you know, you want a sustainable world, vote Green. That's a simple, very simple one-line message. But it all get, the moment they get into office, it's, it, it's completely lost and they're just, you know, um, captured by, by the system here. So I think that, you know, that probably is the future for Australian Greens if they're, they're um, successful. Uh, um, Alan's case about the citizens group winning a case in, in, in the Netherlands, is this the way to go? I, I think we should welcome these things. Similar thing happened in Ireland where people won a case. Good. But it's just propaganda. We shouldn't exaggerate it. It's not a way. You cannot challenge the fundamental uh, economic and political priorities of the system through the courts. Uh, it's, it can play a part as part of a wider movement in making points, but that's all. So I'm not in favour of, you know, being, a, I, I'm not against these things, but it's not a strategic role um, for us because that is not where the central decisions are taken. And in the final analysis, the legal system uh, in any country, although there may be contradictions here and there, but in the final analysis, the legal system is subordinated to the overall economic system, the overall uh, uh, 
ruling class. Um, the NGOs, I think, is Sue is right to identify a problem with NGOs. Look, essentially, NGOs are, are at least partially on the payroll of states. And therefore, what they will actually do is enormously limited. Um, it will be talk rather than action. And I thought your point about preferring small branded actions, they are extremely worried about um, uh, large scale actions that get uh, 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 out of their control. Um, look, this is a fact of life that we have to deal with. Again, we can't simply say, you know, down with NGOs. We have to work with them on certain occasions, but again, they shouldn't be the strategic focus. And it's a, a question of the overall strength of the left in a country, how, how much, how dominant uh, um, uh, 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 they are and how they can um, be, be, be moved and so on, I, I, I think. And I think, yeah, the school strikes were an, um, an enormous breakthrough from that. And again, here, the, the school strikes or Fridays for Future and so on, very, very varied experiences. They played a good role in Glasgow, as I understand it, with 30,000, partly because Greta Thunberg went there and so on. So you had 30,000 on the Friday before the 100,000 march. Brilliant. Um, and it's extremely useful because it raises the question of strike action and so on. And we should be trying to get workers to take strike action alongside that. And there was a bit of that in Glasgow. So all of that was e e extremely good. In Ireland, however, for whatever reason, Fridays for Future sort of collapsed and didn't <coughs> did their own thing separate from the main demonstrations, but mobilised very, very few, very few people, and most of those were not actually school students. Two years ago was very different, but these things go uh, um, uh, uh, up and down, and they change. I think in these we can't say one size fits all. I think you have to look at the concrete situation where you are at that in looking at where you are at in your specific country, the goal has to be the same, which is a mass movement of, uh, um, of people power, of, uh, of, of struggle from below, I think. The other point uh, raised by um, Sue about uh, military emissions, she's absolutely right. I was pleased that our demonstration in Dublin was also leafleted by the Irish anti-war movement that gave out leaflets on war and militarism and how they were killing the planet and the central role. It is extraordinary. The fact that they're exempted just shows they're not serious. I mean, the US military is probably the single institution, the biggest emitter of carbon uh, emissions in the world of any single institution. And to say that modern warfare is not good for the planet, my God, you just have to, I don't know, look at the paintings from the First World War. I, you know, never, never mind from the Iraq wars and so on, and the, you know, or what's happened to Afghanistan. It, it, it's obvious. So I think that, that is absolutely spot on. On the question of the market and renewables and so on, there isn't time to go into all the details here, but it, it's an illusion to believe that the market is going to solve this um, uh, in any way. And one of the deceptions in people's minds is that you walk down the, the you know, you walk out on the hills or something and you see loads and loads of wind turbines. Well, good. Or acres of solar panels, good. But rises in renewables, which of course are necessary, 
absolutely essential part of the, the solution. But the rise in renewables doesn't necessarily mean that carbon emissions are falling. There's been a huge rise in renewals, but carbon emissions, because of the capitalist growth, are continuing to rise. It's not true that emissions are being um, uh, reduced uh, in, uh, on a global basis. At the end of the day, there is one statistic you need to know, and that is the amount of greenhouse gases there are in the atmosphere. That is the, that is the crucial thing. And you can have a green this and a green that and eco-friendly this and eco-friendly that. If the world is producing more greenhouse gases, then global warming is continuing. And it is producing more and more greenhouse gases. And the level of uh, uh, particles in the atmosphere um, PPMs, you know, is the safe level is 350. The current level is about 420 and rising. 418, I think it was the current level. 418 uh, particles per million in the atmosphere and rising. And that's that's the 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 um, fundamental um, question on, on this. Um, last points that uh, the. the <laughs> On Leon's point about them flying in and out and jetting and so on, yeah, I mean, they were attacked over this, and quite rightly so. Uh, Boris Johnson in particular, who left in a in his private jet from Glasgow, flew away. I mean, just shows what a, what a farce it is. Did any politician... Look, I wasn't in Glasgow. I was focused on what we could do in uh, Dublin. I don't know if any in particular individuals came out and joined the crowd. There may have been. I may have missed it. I think some people certainly did, and there were some activists who did. Um, uh, yeah, but we, we should understand that essentially the whole thing was a charade from, from the beginning. I mean, it was uh, uh, arranged. Probably the main deals were done before you even got to the conference, like there was a side deal between America and China and so on. So I, I think the whole thing was a, a, was a charade. Um, to uh, Chris's uh, uh, point uh, and so on, just again, this is just a personal comment. I'm a, a Brit living in Ireland, um, but I don't apologise about this uh, because I've, I've been in Ireland for 10 years now, but I've been opposed to British imperialism in Ireland since 1968 when I first became political. And, that had it, Devlin, now Makaliski, and so on. So I don't regard, I, they're nothing to do with me. I don't apologise for them, and I don't identify on a national basis. Um, but, of course, write about the history of, of British colonialism. Um, the, the, uh, um, the, I don't think it's particularly helpful to talk about two dominant economies, capitalism and communist. Uh, my view is that the uh, Chinese, might be called the Chinese Communist Party, <clears throat> but China is a capitalist economy. And um, thank, I think Chris says I, he accepts my defence. Thank you. <laughs> um, uh, the, the, uh, I, I, I think China is a capitalist country economy and is engaged in capitalist competition. And if there's a new Cold War, uh, you know, I would go with, with the, the slogan, neither Washington nor Beijing. Uh, and China, in ecological terms, is fundamentally part of the problem. But the, when we think about two powers in the world, I would say three powers in the world, uh, one latent. If you say there's America and China, the two dominant superpowers, 
there's a third power that is more powerful than any of them, potentially, and that is the power of the world's people. First and foremost, the power of the working class and all the oppressed in alliance with that, the role of First Nations um, uh, uh, and oppressed peoples. And what we need is an alliance there above, above all. That, of course, is not easy to bring about, but I think everything that we do should be towards bringing about an international alliance of the world's people against the world's uh, against the world's rulers, and that's what I will um, conclude with, because that I think is the only way in which we will reach uh, uh, an eco-socialist solution, an eco-socialist future, and I think without an eco-socialist future, um, the uh, uh, the the alternative is barbarism and ultimately uh, extinction. So on that note, I'll close. Thank you very much. Thanks for that. Um, so I'll pass it on to Sarah. Thanks, Kermit. Um, Yeah, I mean, just on Sue's comment on carbon emissions and war, I think um, Susan bet me to it, but um, Susan posted a link in the chat to, uh, I think it was a Barry Shepherd article in Green Left, um, which is worth a read. Um, but I was just having a look at it before and um, I learned something too, which is that all these... Um, you know, international treaties that are signed around climate change and reduction reduction in carbon emissions um, have never included um, emissions um, caused by military. So that like there's been no no attempt at all to reduce the carbon footprint um, of military interventions. Um, and I, you know, a happy little statistic down the end. Um, which is that in order to harm somebody else, sorry, in order to harm somebody elsewhere in the world takes about 4,400 tonnes of emissions, um, which, you know, I think just speaks to how environmentally destructive, let alone um, socially destructive war is. Um, I guess just the other thing I wanted to take up was, was Sue's comments around, you know, the status of the climate movement and the role of NGOs. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Like, I feel like when Extinction Rebellion first started here in Australia, when was that, sort of 2018, 2019, and right at the peak of Extinction Rebellion, I mean, despite some of their contradictions and some of the political problems, I think the good part about Extinction Rebellion is that it really cut across this like NGO dominated climate movement that we've had in Australia for a long time. Um, if you think about, you know, all the different groups of it that have dominated um, Get Up, AYCC, Tipping Point, like there's been all these different NGOs that have come and gone that have had this like tap on tap off approach to um, either, either the mass mobilizations, because uh, thinking back, Get Up had some quite large mobilizations around climate um all the smaller branded ones but still it was very stage managed and not democratic um and extinction rebellion cut across a lot of that but um you know there has been issues um with extinction rebellion and you know two years of lockdown and i'm i'm probably speaking more from a victorian perspective but over two, 200 days in lockdown in melbourne um has certainly demobilized things um quite a bit so um 
it'll be interesting to see, like, yeah, is there going to be a large response um, from school strike for climate in the new year as we come out of lockdown restrictions? Because um, I think out of all the climate groups, they've been able to mobilise the largest numbers on the streets. Um, and, you know, I think it was the end of 2019, start of 2020, just before COVID, when Australia had those really bad bushfires, um, we did see sort of around the country there were some formations of um, climate justice alliance groups, so bring, trying to bring together the NGOs and the political parties and the left and the activist groups. And so we definitely need to see more of that. Um, and I guess then the next question is, what is the role of the unions in all of this? Um, being a union organiser, it's a very sort of mixed bag here in Australia um, between sort of, I guess, traditional blue collar and white collar unions and what they're prepared to fight for um, in terms of, you know, climate and green jobs and just transitions. But, um, you know, if it's anything to go by some of the recent post-COP26 rallies that we've had, I'm certainly hopeful coming out of lockdown, we will see those large mobilisations again. Um, and there's certainly a role for eco-socialists to play in that. Thanks, comrades. All right. Well, thanks for that, um, everyone. Um, I'd like to thank everyone for, um, we're going to probably wrap up the, um, the forum now. Um, I'd like to thank every all our speakers um, and also like to thank everyone um, for participating. Um, and also just a reminder that um, you can stay in touch um, with Green Left and Social Science by looking at some of the links um, kind of below. Um, now, just one last announcement I just want to kind of make. Um, if you happen to be living in Melbourne, and um, Melbourne was probably one of the main um, the Melbourne branch of Social Science was sort of one of the main organisers of this forum. Um, Great, um, we're actually going to be um, hosting, or Green Left is actually organising a Green Left Performance Night, uh, a night, night of cultural dissent, um, which will be happening on Saturday, 27th of November from 6pm with performances starting at 7pm. It's going to basically be a night of kind of performances, etc. Um, and that's going to be at the Maritime Union Hall at 46 to 54 Island Street in West Melbourne. And I'll send the, the link to um, the event. But anyway, I'd like to thank everyone for participating um, and yeah I hope um, hope to have we'll hope to have more kind of discussions and hope to see you all in the the route the, the upcoming client rallies that will hopefully be happening so yeah thank you everyone I hope you got a lot out of this episode to continue producing shows like this we need your support consider becoming a supporter for five dollars a month sharing this show on social media and submitting your own stories you can do all this at our website greenleft.org. Dot au